looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Okie dokie, I've got squash with me, no bourbon or whiskey at this time of day. <laughs> nice. Well, what is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 485. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going to be tackling the kind of unofficial genre of a bunch of guys on a mission, which usually is World War II, but not exclusively, but the movies we're going to be talking about are all World War II films. But for this topic, we've got Steven Simpson, co-host of Pop Culture Gamers, returning because he's a massive fan of this particular subgenre. Man, I feel like Tarantino talks about this a lot, but it doesn't get celebrated enough. I love this subgenre, but Mr. Simpson, welcome back to Wrong Real. Ah, thank you very much, James. Nice to be back. Yeah, so uh, since our last recording, we got to hang out in the flesh. We got to go to dinner, and Ty went on, and you got to see me buying illegal substances on McDougal. And yeah, we, we we had a nice little bonding session face to face. That was that was pretty cool. That was quite funny actually, because originally looked at me first of all. And come up to me and said, I said, no, I'm fine, thank you. You know, but that was a, a fun little hang session to have you here in NYC. But what have you been up to as of late with your own podcast and your own movie endeavors? So at the moment, I haven't. I've missed two shows since I've um, made this move from seven miles up the road. And movie-wise, well, a few bits and pieces. I've not actually been able to get catch the latest films because I've been too tied up in the move. But I've picked up a few Blu-rays as I've got a new setup in this room now. Uh, picked up a new TV as well and a new 4K player so I can have some perfect quality in my own time and space. So the, the man cave is fully operational? It is, yes. And I like this, this new nano cell technology TV I've got. Pretty good. It, it works really well. So um, I'm chuffed about that. Nice. And any soundtracks you've discovered as of late that you're particularly fond um, of? I've actually picked up one of the. I picked up a re, well, original pressing of one of the ones we're going to talk about today, ironically. And um, I did get another copy of Tenebrae come through the post a few days ago, which is the Mondo release. That comes through pretty quick. Ironically, um, Jay Blake has not got his yet, but I got mine first. Now, how would that work, considering I'm thousands of miles away <laughs> and he's in the same country i don't i don't know i mean it might have maybe to... maybe favoritism I, I don't really know but um <laughs> if, if he's using the u.s postal service then it might have something to do with it i mean u.s postal service and our dmv and there are a few kind of government-run agencies that perhaps are less than efficient but that that, that might have something to do with it but I, I honestly i do not know yeah so that's cool i mean i've, I've got a couple in the in the in the works i've got a Ghostbusters being released for the first time on vinyl, and that's being shipped in November. And also, I've got coming. What else is there? Um, oh yeah, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two and Friday the Thirteenth Part Three 
which would be one of them's a repressing, one's a first release. So they're coming in bound at some time as well. So gotcha. Now, do you ever just listen to music that's not movie related? Just like tossing some oh, some CDs uh, <laughs> or MP3s. I have got an array. I mean, I what have I picked up recently? I pre- I picked up one of Daft Punk's albums, which I'm particularly fond of. So there is, believe it or not, a big selection on my left of, of albums of bands that I've been listening to over the years. I mean, I did see Gary Newman. You may not know who he is, but um, I went to see him about a week ago okay and and also i've got another gig coming up in november on another 80s band that was doing their 40th anniversary tour so there's a couple of things in the mix from that point of view from the good old rock and roll type compared to what i do listen to most of the time but yeah i have a nice selection there well let's start shifting gears into our topics now there are a lot of war films but they're not necessarily all in this same category and there are a lot of westerns but they don't necessarily always fall into this category there's a, it's a it's a strange thing where you kind of know it when you see it but in the 50s 60s and 70s you had a lot of these films which as i mentioned before tarantino just describes them it's a bunch of guys on a mission and more often than not they have a slightly lighthearted tone or at least a little like dark comedy uh, kind of shoved in there but how do you describe or categorize this subgenre? Because if you see a film like Saving Private Ryan, it doesn't feel like one of these bunch of guys on a mission movie. It feels just more like a straight up war film. And I feel like I, I maybe I am overly obsessing what this category might entail, but I feel like for people who like movies like Guns of Navarone or Dirty Dozen or Kelly's Heroes, they know precisely what we're talking about. But for you, like, do you draw any distinction between these kinds of movies and your typical war film? Well, it's funny because I just see recently they just redone the Battle of Midway, apparently. Mm-hmm. That's coming out shortly. Yeah, it's a, a Roland Emmerich film that just came out uh, yesterday here in the States. So, again, it, we've got we've had all like, I mean, I won't talk about Pearl Harbor in the same vein, probably, but um, these movies aren't the same as what they were back in the 60s, 70s at all, I don't think. And I class them as a different type of movie for, for the war movies because they were... They were the Germans, Germans versus the American and, 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 and the, or the British or whatever. But these are, I don't know, I just can't really pinpoint it, but they're just not the same. They it feel almost they, like heist movies because usually they're either trying to take out a bunker or commit, commit like an assassination or steal gold. But there's like a mission within a mission. And oftentimes they're depicted as perhaps morally unsavory characters who might not necessarily be operating for purely for patriotic reasons. I know that, <laughs> that Dirty Dozen got in a lot of hot water for showing American soldiers committing war crimes. It was one of the first movies to do that. And obviously Kelly's Heroes, they're, they kind of accidentally <laughs> do a great Stumbling. job while trying to steal gold. In Guns of Navarone, you've got demolitions experts and knife experts and all these different characters. But I feel like you always have... It's a situation where typically every character in the mix has a specialty. They're like a good deal broker or they're a great, like, like I said, or a great knife expert or, or a great climber. They all have like a special skill and then they all mm. come together to accomplish a particular objective. And you could, can't, I think you can't, to be honest, you can't compare that to, say, something like the Battle of Britain, for example, or even the Dam Busters, even though that's a... They're, again, one that we may go back to. That was a man with a mission, but in a different vein compared to to these movies where they've all got their traits that they're good for, where in probably Battle of Britain or even the Dambusters, they were a different mission altogether that they were were dealing with. 
Also, I feel like these movies aren't necessarily meant to be taken that seriously as quote-unquote war films. I feel like there are a lot of movies that are trying to examine the cost of the war or the politics of Mm -hmm. the war, whereas these are more from the not escapist entertainment. And even the guys who are in the movies, many of whom were veterans, are very dismissive of the film. Like <laughs> Lee Marvin thinks that The Dirty Dozen is a total joke, even though it was the biggest hit of 1967. And Guns yeah. Never Own, once again, it was the biggest hit of 1961. These are big, giant crowd pleasers with a ton of laughs. Yeah, they were highly, they highly were pleasers, I think, at the end of the day. Absolutely. The guns of Navarone. The greatest high adventure of our time. With a cast as exciting as the story it tells. Gregory Peck. David Niven. Anthony Quinn. Stanley Baker. Anthony Coyle. James Darren. Irene Pappas, Gia Scala, Alastair McLean's best-selling novel, Live to the Hilt on the Islands of the Aegean Sea. I'd like to tell you something about The Guns of Navarone, because it's the most unusual film in which I've ever appeared. I play the role of Mallory, the man whose job it is to lead six expert cutthroats and saboteurs on a desperate and impossible mission. Watch out! What makes it even more desperate and impossible is that some of us hate each other even more than we do the enemy. That's all right pretty good partner you've got there yourself. He's going to kill me when the war is over. You think that you've been getting away with it all this time, standing by. Well, son, your bystanding days are over. You're in it now, up to your neck. They told me that you're a genius with explosives. Start proving it. You got me in the mood to use this thing. And by God, if you don't think of something, I'll use it on you. The Guns of Navarone is crowded with action and excitement. But it is even more than great adventure. Over and above its tremendous thrill, this is a story of human beings, each with his intense personal fears, his deep personal conflicts, each with his moments of triumph and tenderness. This is a story of unrivaled courage. And suspense. Quietly, gentlemen, unless you want a great many innocent people killed as well as yourselves. Everyone is staying exactly where you are. The party's over. Somebody's stepped on the cake, which means that there is a traitor in this room. The Guns of Navarone, I promise you, is probably the most exciting film you will ever see. 
Alrighty, now that we've got the preliminaries out of the way, let's just dive into this first movie, The Guns of Navarone, which I first heard about in Pulp Fiction when... Um, really? You, well, you have... Cause I guess that movie came out in the fall of 94, and then you have... They're cleaning up the brains and the blood in the back of the car, and John mm. is basically warning that he could blow any second. He's like, oh, he's like, well, I'm a H-bomb lame motherfucker. I'm the Guns of Navarone. I was like, Guns of Navarone? What the hell is that? I got a threshold, Jules. I got a threshold for the abuse that I will take. Now, I'm right now I'm a fucking race car, right? And you got me in a red. And I'm just saying, I'm just saying that it's fucking dangerous to have a race car in a fucking red. That's all. I could blow. Oh, oh, you ready to blow? Yeah, I'm ready to blow. Well, I'm a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. Every time my fingers touch brain, I'm super fly TNT. I'm the guns of the Navarone. In fact, what the fuck am I doing in the back? You the motherfucker should be on brain detail. We're fucking switching. I'm washing the windows and you picking up this nigga's skull. And then sure enough, like a year or so later, I was working in L.A. as an intern. Yeah, And the new Beverly was playing the Guns of Navarone as part of a double feature, I believe, with The Great Escape. But I might be mistaken with, on that. In any event, I got to see the Guns of Navarone in the theater. And I was like, all right, fuck yeah, this movie, this movie rocks. But when was the first time you saw the Guns of Navarone? I'm going to say, now this came out 61. Um, I wasn't even born. I was born three years later. So I probably saw it on TV. So we're looking... Probably um, mid seventies, maybe if we're lucky. Thinking about it, not sure what the time frame was for the films that day before they were released on um, on the four channels that we had to view on. <clears throat> yeah, and this is also one of those big, giant, widescreen extravaganzas that definitely should be viewed in the uh, the original format if possible. I mean, TV definitely doesn't do it justice. But what I love is you have this writer Carl Foreman adapting Alistair MacLean's novel. But Carl mm. Foreman wrote so many cool movies like Bridge on the River Kwai and High Noon and Young Winston. He's a, a major writer. And apparently after Winston Churchill saw this movie, he said, I, like, I want you to write the movie that's going to be made about me. Even though Winston died before the movie came out, Young Winston mm. eventually would come out, I think in like 70 or 71. Yeah. I mean, this this originally received a youth certificate in the UK because they were overdubbing um, the word of bloody. Because uh, bloody is actually considered like a swear word in the UK, correct? It is. It is, yeah. So they changed it to a less offensive one. I'm calling it ruddy. Ah. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like saying like somebody's bottom is like a cuss word. Like a, you know, Yeah, just... it is. It is. And, and I mean, they restored it back in 1993 um, with the widescreen version and, and a full unedited version. So it took so many years Probably for, to get the, the I'm, I'm sure the version I saw would have been a use certificate as well at the time. So um, also, in bollocks considered a cuss word as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, mean, I guess that's your balls, correct? But I, but I, it's funny because I was. But I was, it basically means like made, bullshit. If you say something silly, something like oh, bollocks. Well, that's it. I mean, I was watching a, a program with um, Mrs. the other night, and it was to do with a, we there's a chain of stores that my company have taken over for looking after for CCTV. So I thought we'd just put this on. And they were going around the camera with the store. And there was the Sex Pistols album, never mind the bollocks, in full view on the screen. I'm surprised they didn't scrub it out and make it smeary so you couldn't read it, but they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the things where I don't know if America's got any cuss words that are considered harmless. And I guess um, fanny is an interesting one because obviously here in America, your fanny is your butt, but your fanny in the UK is on the, the other side. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. But then there's a fanny pack as well. So I don't get, I don't get that. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's funny, uh, it's the old expression goes, we are two cultures separated by a common language. Well, that's it. Absolutely. But let's dive into Guns and Never In because what all three of these movies have in common is where you just assemble the coolest cast you can get your hands on. And it's usually mm. a large cast, but with a few key speaking roles with the leaders. But mm. what is the premise of the Guns of Navarone? So what we had here, we had a British team sent across to occupy Greek territory and had to destroy a massive gun emplacement that compounded a key channel through the, through the Greek islands. And uh, yeah, it's, it sounds very Bond-like to me, especially when you see Avengers see it and you see the, the way they're trying to destroy it. It just comes. It just just got a very Bond sense of something. That this could it have been a Bond like movie. It feels like one of those classic Ken Adams set pieces, like in You Only Live Twice. Yes, and exactly. Yeah, so much so that they actually had a Guns of Navarone playset, like of the entire mountain with all these different levels and action figures, which was part of the inspiration for Castle Grayskull <laughs> many years later. But one of the guys working there loved this Guns of Navarone playset and was like, yeah, we got to, we're going to do our own version of that when they first launched the uh, Masters of the Universe uh, toy line. Were they allowed to have an electrical circuit on it for the for the uh, lift as well? Yeah, I mean, I can't remember if there was a little elevator or not, but there definitely was a trap door, but and there were few, much fewer levels. But yeah, if you look at the pictures of the Guns of Never in place set, it's many levels. Mm. But I didn't even know they really sold like movie play sets back then. But sure enough, that there it was. I but, never, I never heard of it. To be honest. Oh yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Well, when I when I promote this on uh, online, I'll definitely be including some images, but. I guess maybe one of the big knocks against this movie when it first came out was that Gregory Peck is not a Brit and it's a British story, and mm. all these guys are like eighty and way too old to be soldiers. Well, they said they all they all said this. Well, why am I playing this when I'm not even? I'm too old to be playing this sort of role. Because soldiers are like I mean, eighteen, nineteen. They're supposed to be like you know kids, but in all three of these movies, they, they're all got like gray hair and wrinkles. But I like it. I'm much more. I'd much rather have rugged kick-ass personalities than mm. fresh-faced <clears throat> youths and lee marvin and uh you know some and uh, dirty dozen he might have been way too old for that movie but he actually served and he knows wherever he speaks and they, they know the drill even if the movies are wildly fantastic i love how they play play such a huge emphasis on including people who had served in these movies obviously anthony quinn was um uh um i had oh damn it i wrote too many notes for this episode and so now i've got uh, it's gonna be hard to find everything. i did i did read that and also david niven served as well didn't he yeah, all right, so. so sir anthony quayle who plays franklin he was a major in albania organizing guerrilla forces and then david niven he commanded units in the commandos and the ghq liaison regiment which was a special reconnaissance unit that operated behind enemy lines like when you think of David Niven, you think of this perfectly charming, civilized, kind of dapper gentleman who's very light on his feet. But he's a total badass in his own right. There's, there's no one like him anymore, is there, really? I, I mean, I remember watching back as a kid, um, maybe at the same time when this was out on the TV, it was watching A Matter of Life and Death. And another fantastic role from him, you know. Um, Extraordinary. As a, as a war pilot, obviously trying to stay alive because he, he was classed as being dead. And I won't even go into that one now, but that may be worth, worth but a chat yeah, one of the day. essential Powell and Pressburger films. And, and that actually might've been the first Powell and Pressburger film I ever saw. And I got to see it at the Egyptian in LA. It was this beautiful, fully restored, uh, technicolor print. <clears throat> it just looked absolutely fantastic. And, and it, I mean, not many movies at the time did that color to black and white idea. Probably either. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're hundred percent correct. 
Well, what's cool about this is how you've got a little bit of kind of tension brewing beneath the surface because Anthony Quinn's character has a little bit of a blood feud with Gregory Peck. And while they're kind of setting it aside for the duration of the mission, these guys are two of the best climbers. And I guess the problem with this bunker is that it can't be bombed from above because it's buried in this cliff. And so there's there's not a bomb big enough in the world to disrupt it. Or you could have a suicide bomber fly down and then kind of hook inside to try to d- get rid of these uh, which, these two which guns. Which they said that they did, because you had, to, at the beginning there, one actor that was in this, but only very briefly, was Richard Harris. He's incredible in it, yeah. And um, the other guy behind him was saying that, you know, who's who's stupid enough to do a kamikaze mission into that, you know, with with a, with a, with a bomber and that. But, yeah, because Richard Harris, I thought, well, maybe he could have been a bit more, but... Oh, yeah, well, I think he, he was so new. Like he'd done this and like uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, but he was brand new, so maybe they didn't quite know what an asset they had on their hands. But finally, <clears> they decide the best way to take this place out is to get just a team full of assassins and a couple of expert climbers to climb up this cliff that the Germans aren't watching because it's considered inaccessible. And Gregory Peck's character hasn't climbed in five years, so he's not necessarily at the top of his game, but he is a mm. superb climber. And I just, I, I just love the fact that it's such a down and dirty little mission where they don't have a lot of high tech. They're going to be meeting with like the local resistance in the area. And they're basically relying upon, you know, handguns and knives and ropes and things like that. And their wits to, and they're just how resourceful they can be as opposed to mounting some huge expedition to take this place out. But it's just a really cool premise. And I think of all three of these probably feels the most grounded or has the highest stakes. I mean, Gregory Peck thought the movie was an anti-war film, in spite of the fact mm. that it was becoming this giant <laughs> success. People absolutely loved it, but I guess there's this constant recurring theme throughout it, this idea of sending good men to their deaths and not necessarily wanting to do it, but having to do it, or putting people in a position where horrible things are going to happen to them because it's advantageous to your mission. I mean, obviously, with the character of mm. um, their commanding officer who breaks his leg during the climb, they deliberately feed him misinformation and knowing that the Germans eventually are going to either torture him or drug him in order to get information that will allow this group to pull off their mission. And David yeah, Niffin yeah. is absolutely horrified by Gregory Peck's plan. So I feel like this movie perhaps is a little bit more darkness at its core than the mm, other two, yeah. but it still remains a very, very fun, exciting action flick. Yeah, I mean, you didn't even know the, the twist that um, uh, as Anna, wasn't it? Was gonna was gonna turn on the crew and um, leave breadcrumbs behind for the Germans. Absolutely, yeah. I mean that's a pretty ruthless scene, and it should be said that Irene Pappas, who's a favorite of uh, Matthias van der Roos, a regular contributor to Wrong Reel, he's obsessed with Irene Pappas. Has an Irene Pappas fan account on Twitter. <laughs> she was she looked actually good. I mean the t- at the point literally where um, they were gonna he was gonna kill her and that she she looked she, she looked too gorgeous to shoot. You know. Well, they, the big question is whether or not um, she's apparently according to what she's told everybody she has all these horrible lacerations and scars on her back from when she was yeah. tortured and they rip her her dress open and reveal this perfectly sculpted beautiful back like oh, not only she was she not tortured she's smoking hot but then of course he has, yeah as irene Pappas who uh who puts her down for collaborating with the enemy yeah that's true i mean the mixture of, of actors were put into this film. Obviously, we mentioned Gregory Peck and David Niven, Anthony Quinn, um, Stanley Baxter, who was really known for Zulu. Um, I think his his role was pretty good. I mean, he's quite a defined character in himself, to be honest. And then also you had James Darren. Now, don't get me wrong in this. It's, James Darren's great. I love him. But I kept thinking this was a time tunnel episode. 
if you know where I'm coming from with this, because of what you used to do with Erwin Allen, if you remember. Oh, I, I, I'm unfamiliar, so enlighten me. So, obviously, um, Erwin Allen's the Time Tunnel TV show in the 60s, and James Darren was one of the two characters that was always bounced around in time through the show. Gotcha. So, seeing him in this sort of situation, if you, if you go back to the series, you'll see something similar, probably, where he was... In a in a in, in this sort of scenario, and um, I've probably gonna have to dig the time tunnel series out. I've got it somewhere sitting around in my room. So um, yeah, just totally bizarre. But try not try not to get away from that too much. It was it was just a bit weird because I didn't remember at the time I saw this as a child. Not until now that I realised who he was. And the time tunnel, I probably watched that later in the, probably mid late seventies. So I didn't know who he was at the time. And then when I watched it again recently. And I sort of my, my 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 jaw dropped to the floor. I thought, really? I can't believe it, you know. But he's yeah, he's a good 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 actor. I like him. Well, apparently there's a little bit of tension on the set initially, where some of the the cast wasn't necessarily getting along that well. But apparently, with uh, Gregory Peck and Anthony Quinn, eventually they bonded over endless games of chess. I don't know why. Yeah. They had, I don't know why they had friction early on, but they eventually bonded. But the people who really bonded were David Niffen and Gregory Peck. And apparently, mm. they, what they loved to do was getting absolutely shit faced, drinking brandy while shooting in this cold uh, studio space. And David Niffen apparently was in awe of the fact that Gregory Peck could drink so much brandy and still deliver his lines clearly. And they became yeah. lifelong friends. And eventually, David Niffen's funeral, Gregory Peck delivered the eulogy. The eulogy. Yeah, it's. I don't think have they ever worked before together. I think what just this once. I can't recall another time they did. But um, <clears throat> yeah, and even at the point, which is something quite ironically, is that David Niven was a non-smoker, and this was the first time ever that he smoked on set for a film before gotcha which i think those days because everyone smoked didn't they normally in these movies i mean when i was as a little kid in the late 70s and early 80s it seemed like it was the it was unusual not to be a smoker (laughs) even like health freaks like my grandfather was a health and fitness nut who's constantly playing tennis and like competing in these amateur track and field tournaments and like well into his 50s and yet after dinner he would have a cigarette so (laughs) everybody smoked it was just the it was just the way everybody rolled back then yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, something else actually was quite like in this was um, the guy that was doing the intro and outro. Oh, he's incredible. Uh, James Robertson Justice. That's who, it. Who's the and narrator and also who plays the initial commanding officer whose job it is essentially right. to send good men to certain death. Exactly. And I, I watched his movies over the year and I've got a very soft spot for some of his work. And he did a lot of British films where oh, he he's played a marvelous a actor. I don't know if you ever saw the Doctor movies that he played, because he played um, Sir Lancelot, which is his character. Oh, interesting. And he was he was like the head of the um, the, uh, the sort of the top end of the Doctor's, uh, you know, within a hospital. And he did loads of these movies like that. And I think it was with Dirk Bogart and people like that that were, were in these movies. Uh, now, do you think Gregory Peck should have attempted a British accent? Because one of the things where, when I'm watching it, I just assume, oh, he's a, an American soldier that somehow got roped in. But I, for some people, that is a stumbling block that Gregory Peck just declined to do an accent of any kind. Yeah. I mean, his accent he has anyway isn't that bad to roll over as, as maybe like, British. I don't even know what his like, accent is. It's this incredibly serious theatrical accent but it's not like there's a place in america that you go to and everybody's talking like gregory peck like (laughs) gregory peck has an incredibly dignified just really distinguished specific way of speaking that's almost kind of undefinable 
Because he sounds like that in um, To Kill a Mockingbird, and he sounds the same when he's in The Omen. So, Absolutely, you know. where he's playing the like, the American ambassador over over to to England, and but yeah. it's one of the things where I there have been time, probably when I was younger I would have oh he's English like I, I probably just would have assumed he was, but he just has his own way of speaking. But I love it. It's a, he has a, an incredible delivery style. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> and uh, I think the way the story the way the story goes, it probably has got a bit of a slow start. I think this one, and the way it's building, obviously they get they get captured in the in the cafe area after the the trailer bro comes been behind from Anna, and ironically, the Greek royal family were extras in that scene yep. apparently. We just said, yeah, just come and join us. You know, obviously they, they are royalty, so they can do what they want. But um, yeah, sat down there and had a probably some alcohol or whatever in the background while they were getting um, guns at their heads with the uh, with the Germans. Yeah, it, I, I agree. It has a bit of a slow start, but it does have for its time some pretty hardcore action. Like there's a bit where they're on a boat and they get inspected by Germans mm. and they very quickly take them out. And granted, this is before Peckinpah's kind of redefined how an action scene should be staged. But I feel like for 1961, the action is pretty goddamn down and dirty. And toward the end, you have people like walking toward each other with machine guns, and it, it gets pretty gets pretty hardcore. Well, yeah, because then you, you get the scene where when they where, where they've been captured and they've been they've been taken into this sort of interrogation room, and Anthony Quinn is there rolling all over the floor, pretending to be ill, trying to stop. The, the guy that's that's been laid up and um, to break his uh, break his legs, you know, it's. I mean, those scenes it, are pretty it, gripping as well. Like the Nazis are basically threatening to. Uh, you have this guy with gang a gangrene leg, and they're kind of yeah. tapping it with a gun, and you know, like what they're going to do to him. It's absolutely horrible, and that is one of the more interesting things in this movie. Where do you trust or do you try to wage a quote unquote civilized war? Because obviously before, before this movie begins, Peck's character in an effort to uh, be civilized, gave German safe conduct to a hospital where they, and then they end up killing Anthony Quinn's family. So mm. at this point, he's kind of got fewer illusions about uh, a civilized war. Or, but when it comes to, I guess every test of humanity that's been given to the Germans in the past the, the Nazis have failed, but even some of the, the Nazi officers in this movie try to like uh, protest, like, "Oh, we're not all like that guy." We're not. Well, we're that's not all right the same. because obviously he knows how the Geneva Convention runs, and when you've got an injured um, prisoner of war, theoretically, that you you've got to look after him. Yeah, he, exactly. And uh, the other guy was definitely not on that wall. He certainly wanted to make him pay for it, you know, and uh, get some information out of him where the explosive were hidden. Now, do you have any fond <clears throat> affection for the sequel? Forced Ten from Navarone from 1978, which admittedly I have never seen, but as a little kid I was fascinated by because my older brother basically lied to me, or maybe he was just kind of confused, but he basically told me that there was like this strange, like time traveling slash World War II mashup involving all these different characters, and now like Han Solo left Star Wars to be like in a, a war movie, and it, it sounded like the coolest idea for a movie of all time, but. It's that's not the plot of the movie. It's just a yeah. straight up sequel, is my understanding. Well, well, yeah, because I mean, I think Carl Weathers is in it as well. Remember, so um, it's a very mishmash of actors from different movies that were out before this. I did see it at the cinema. I haven't seen it since though, but it's worth probably worth tracking down to watch again. Yeah, it's got yeah. So 1978 got Robert Shaw, Harrison Ford, Barbara Bach, hotty toddy toddy, uh, Franco yeah. Nero, Carl Weathers, Richard Kyle. I mean, it's, it looks interesting, so I should see it at some point because it seems like it comes up every once in a while. 
but and it's from the director of Goldfinger, Guy Hamilton. So, there you go. Yeah, so I, it sounds right up my alley. Just for whatever reason, I've just never seen Force Ten from Navarone. But yeah, the director of um, Gun, Guns and Navarone, J. Lee Thompson. This was his first American kind of Hollywood production. But he would go on to do things like Cape Fear. So <clears throat> he became a pretty big director in his own right. So that would be the Cape Fear, obviously, with uh, with Robert with Gregory Peck and Gregory Peck, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, which is still, I think, if anyone's never watched the original movie, as much as I adore the remake, and the remake is gruesome and brutal, uh, the original is fantastic as well. Well, well worth digging yeah, out. Yeah, I also caught that at the New Beverly. New Beverly Cinema in the late '90s was a <clears> complete <throat> total shithole. But now it's owned by Quentin Tarantino, and apparently they've polished it up. But what I liked about the New Beverly back then is that I would see movies on film, and sometimes they were scratchy mm. and beat-up prints. And even though your feet stuck to the floor and the place kind of smelled like popcorn farts and you'd have homeless people digging through bags, they would plan these extraordinary double features. And I saw some of my favorite movies of all time for the first time at the New Beverly. So it's a weird place where it's got a lot of, it had a lot of rough charm. And the night of 9-11... Becky and I went to the New Beverly, and we saw oh, really? we saw White Heat. So it's it was it was um I guess a, a place where you could feel like where you could relax. But for whatever we had, we already had plans to go there, and then when nine eleven happened, we're like it's not like by not going we're gonna somehow. Uh, it was a weird thing where we just we just felt like we had to go. So, so we went. Well, it probably took, took your mind off it, really, to be honest, didn't it? It, took, it just took you away from the scenario situation exactly. you were but in. Also, it's one of those attitudes where, and this was a very prevalent attitude, where no matter what the terrorists do, don't let it interfere with your way of doing things because then they're getting a win. And so that was probably yeah, yeah. also part of our philosophy. So in any event, <clears> I, I love the New Beverly. I need to see it now because – Obviously, our friends at like the new um, uh, Pure Cinema podcast are always talking about the New Beverly Calendar, but yeah, very cool theater. But any final words on Guns of Navarone? Any particular details or ingredients that strike you before we move on to our next movie? Well, the special effects worked pretty well for the day. I mean, the um, I mean, some of the the special effects we used to get in some of the Bond movies. For the for the later the time, because obviously this would have been before even Doctor No came out. Um, seemed pretty good, and they they work they work well. They don't don't seem out of place at all. I mean, it's one of the most at the time with a budget of six million dollars. It was one of the most expensive movies ever made. So Doctor No was not. I mean, Doctor No. It took a while for the Bond films to, to kind of find their big budgets. Guns and Navarone was a big, giant, prestige studio movie. And I think when you watch that, watch them blow up and they, they come out of there as they fall down into the sea, it's great. It just it, it doesn't look wrong, and you don't pick it apart if you know what I mean. Some films you think, well, that looks rather lame. That, you know, they could have done better with that. But personally, I think they, they did a grand job with it. Yeah, I think it holds up well. I mean, you could complain about the length, and I think that's totally justified. But for me, the cast is so goddamn good, and the movie's just got an <clears throat> edge to it. And I just love the chemistry between all the characters. That I think it's well worth revisiting. It's not my favorite bunch of guys on a mission movie, but it's definitely one of the essential early examples. I mean, whether oh, you talk yeah. about Magnificent Seven or whatever the case may be, it all depends on how loosely you define this kind of made-up subgenre. But I feel like if you look at just the abundance of movies that were made with a similar, I guess, kind of premise or similar atmosphere, it is a totally justifiable kind of category of action film. Yeah, because we didn't get—I don't think we got those those type of movies back since probably the Expendables, maybe. 
would be something that would be you would think of being the same sort of idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like with our next movie, The Dirty Dozen from 1967, this subgenre kind of crystallizes. Major Risen, you are ordered by Allied Command to select 12 general prisoners convicted by courts martial and sentenced to be executed or serve lengthy prison terms for murder, rape, robbery, and other crimes of violence. And you will deliver them secretly behind enemy lines in France to undertake a mission of sabotage that could change the course of the war. The 12 men will be known as the Dirty Dozen. Lee Marvin as Major John Reisman. There's a little of Major Reisman in every man, says Marvin. Tough and unyielding, yet compassionate. I think it's the best role I've ever been asked to play. You've all volunteered for a mission which gives you just three ways to go. Either you can file up in training and be shipped back here for immediate execution of sentence, or you can file up in combat, in which case I will personally blow your brains out, or you can do as you're told, in which case you might just get by. Now you hold it right there. This war was not started for your private gratification, and you can be damn sure that this army isn't being run for your personal convenience either. Ernest Borgnine as General Warden. I'm tired of seeing generals portrayed as desk-bound pen pushers, says Borgnine. So I've played Warden as a rough professional soldier. Robert Ryan as Colonel Everett Dasher Breed. There were officers like Breed, says Ryan who could never suffer the rules broken or even bend a little. Major Reisman's compliments, sir. You prefer to be captured or destroyed. Jimmy Brown as Napoleon Jefferson. Jefferson is any man fighting for recognition against the odds, says Brown. I think I understand him pretty well. The hell is... John Cassavetes as Victor Franco, says Cassavetes. Franco is a petty hoodlum forced to heroism by circumstances beyond his control. We go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want. That's what they want. Trini Lopez as Jimenez. He's crawling with hate. Charles Bronson as Vladislaw. The last guy in the world you'd expect to be a hero. <laughs> Telly Savalas as Archer Maggot. Maggot is a maniac, says Savalas. His religious fanaticism can never be moderated or quelled. It is a constant danger. Clint Walker as Samson Posey, an Indian with war paint smeared on his soul. Train them. Excite them. Arm them. And turn them loose on the Nazi High Command. It is a suicide mission where you have people who have either been sentenced to life in prison or sentenced to be hanged who are given one last chance to go on a mission. And if they succeed, if they survive, they might get a chance to go free. And obviously now you've got James Gunn doing a sequel to The Suicide Squad, but Dirty Dozen, I feel like, really locks in place what this genre is all about, where you've got one guy who's trying to 
polish up a bunch of ne'er-do-wells and see if they can survive a mission. But even like Armageddon, the Michael Bay film, was kind of similar to that, where you have a bunch of loose cannons that are trying to go off and no, save I the world. Totally, I never thought of that. But yeah, you're totally right. Absolutely. It was um, but, same, different premise, but very similar. Yeah, but similar, similar in approach. But The Dirty Dozen has one of my favorite casts ever assembled you've got the great robert aldrich in the in the director's chair robert aldrich for whatever reason these days doesn't get a whole lot of love but man he is such a cool solid director movies like kiss me deadly i mean it's one of the best film noirs ever made whatever happened to baby jane uh ulzana's raid the longest yard he's a really solid filmmaker but this movie like guns and never own was the biggest money maker of its year it was a big giant monster hit and it really helped, I guess, establish Robert Aldrich. It's one of the most commercially viable directors in Hollywood. Yeah, and the the cast. I mean, there's a few there which probably are under the radar that people may not know, but but the bulk of them there, they were they were big hitters of their time. Well, also you, and it's helped establish some of these guys as big hitters as well. Like Jim Brown was still an active football player when when he made this movie, and because the film went over schedule, he missed uh, oh, early training and ended up quitting the NFL to remain in Hollywood because he had a really positive experience making this movie. Uh, you got Charles Bronson, Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin, John Cassavetes, uh, George Kennedy, Robert Ryan, Telly Savalas, Donald Sutherland. I mean, the cast is fucking unreal. But speaking of Jim Brown, he said something really nice about the making of this movie. Hang on, let me see. I've, once again, I took way too many goddamn notes. It's going to take me a second. Where, oh, so Jim Brown later recalled, I loved my part. I was one of the dozen, a quiet leader and my own man. At a time when Hollywood wasn't giving these roles to blacks, I'd never had more fun making a movie. The male cast was incredible. I worked with some of the strongest, craziest guys in the business. And obviously Jim Brown went on to be like a black exploitation superstar in the following decade. Yeah. This is where he really gets a start. But man, there's one scene where you get to see him running after he drops all the hand grenades down on the on the oh, people God, down yeah. in that bunker. But you're like, all right, Jim Brown, he's 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 like the rest of these guys are kind of old and stiff. Jim Brown's an athlete. Yeah, but he, I mean, he 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 had a shocker even when he when he did the dirty on um, who did he kill now? I can't remember now. <clears throat> it Deli was. Telly Savalas, yeah. yeah. I'm like, well, Telly One of my only criticisms of this movie is Telly Savalas's southern accent's a little over the top. He does a much better job in Kelly's Heroes, which we'll talk about. I next. was going to say he's very, he's a very quiet character in this. But in this, he's a religious zealot, and he's a hardcore racist. He does not like yeah. black people at all, and it's a constant source of frustration and tension when they're all training together when he's using very colorful language to describe Jim Brown's race, which results in fights, etc. But during the actual mission itself, Tele Savalas goes completely fucking psycho and ends up stabbing a girl, starts giggling like the Joker as he's going on a, like a killing rampage with a machine gun, and Jim Brown basically mows him down like a mad dog. Justifiable so, probably. Yeah, time. 100%. It's like, oh, you've gone crazy. You've got to go. <laughs> I think there's, there was one thing, actually, about this movie that, I don't think happened a lot of the time. The credits weren't for about didn't start till about ten minutes into the film. That was really unusual for the period, and it's it, it's so cool because you have first Lee Marvin. He's brought in. He's given this impossible mission that he can't refuse. He's not he's not happy about it. But this idea of leading men who have already proven to be lacking in discipline, lacking yeah. in morale, untrustworthy, etc. I mean, and then but you have this phenomenal opening credit sequence where they're introducing all the characters and giving their life sentence 
or given like a how that whether they're going to be sentenced to life in prison or they're going to be hanged to death. But what's mm. missing now, and it was missing in the copy that I watched over the years, they muted the audio where they described the crime. Originally, they say the name, the crime, and the sentence, and then they would move on to the next person. But it was considered so controversial that the idea of, of American soldiers having committed all these horrible crimes that it's actually been muted in most copies of the film. And the copy on Amazon is the censored version. Yeah, that's the version I watched as well, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and but as you can once you know about it, you're like, oh, it, it is weird. Like you had this weird little deliberate it, it almost sounds like they're doing it for dramatic effect, like death by hanging or 30 years of hard labor. But yeah. the little blank is whatever their crime was. And you have to basically look up what that dialogue is now in order to hear what their crimes were. But that, that introduction, so fucking cool. And obviously Tarantino loves this movie because the opening of Inglorious Bastards, granted, they show the scene on the farm first and then they cut to the bastards being basically told what their mission is going to be. It's very mm. similar to the opening of The Dirty Dozen. Yeah, I think uh, I think he got the idea from that straight off, didn't he? So, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, no, it's um, it again. I I say this has a bit of a slow start again. I think, and it builds up to the probably my favourite part is middle of the movie with the uh, they got to prove how good they are by being on these sort of war games. Yeah, running yeah, yeah. Brown. It, the, the the Dirty Dozen initially they are a bunch of individuals, but at a certain point they bond and they become the Dirty Dozen. And then yeah. when you get to see that camaraderie and the way they work together as a team, it is really fun. Like I mean, early on, obviously like Cassavetes is pissed because he doesn't think condemned men should have to have to drill, and he attacks Lee Marvin, who basically kicks him in the, in the <laughs> face. Well, yeah, he takes him out and says, "Yeah, you want to try that again, boy?" Yeah, and I, I do love. I mean, Lee Marvin is just so salty and so. I'm tough. glad he didn't go. I'm glad he didn't burst into song anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, his his singing voice definitely uh, is, leaves a lot to be desired. But I love watching him like when he's motivating them, like they're climbing the rope, and a guy says he can't climb any higher, and he pulls out a machine gun and just shoots <clears> the rope, so he has no choice but to keep going up. But finally, they bond as a team because John Cassavetes' character is pissed that they're having to shave with cold water as opposed to yeah. hot water like the rest of the officers, and so they decide not to bathe or not to shave until the mission's over. Hence the name, yeah. the Dirty Dirt, Dozen. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, I think George Kennedy was was a surprise one for me from not seeing the film for such a long time, and after just recently watching all those airplane movies that he was in. Well, I always think of him as Dragline and uh, Cool Hand Luke, but I, I'm a, I am a big George Kennedy fan. But is is he the only actor who's in all the airplane movies or airport movies? I, th I think he was probably yeah. I think he was, and uh, it was yeah. They just come it wasn't that long ago I actually watched them so. Um, I mean, that scene yeah. in Concord, I guess Airport 779, the Concord, when he finds out that the date he went on was actually with a hooker instead of just like a random date, and he's like thrilled and excited. <laughs> it's such a funny <laughs> scene, but George Kennedy, I, I, love, I, mean, I guess as a kid, I saw him in the Naked Gun movies, but then, yeah, mm -hmm. Cool Hand Luke, the Airport, I, I, I love George yeah. Kennedy. He's such a great, he's such a great character. Yeah. Oh, and Iger Sanction, he's really good in Iger Sanction. Yeah, and then you had Donald Sutherland as well. Again, maybe a quieter character from what we're going to talk about later. But um, I think he, he looks a bit younger there as well. Maybe it was, it was just three years before. Yeah, Kelly's Heroes comes three years later. But yeah. this movie really helped put Donald Sutherland on the map because there's a scene where he's impersonating a general inspecting Robert Ryan's troops. And the scene was played for laughs. And it led to him being cast in MASH a couple of years later, which made him yeah. a huge fucking star. 
I haven't seen that movie in an age, I must admit. I'm, uh, that's worth a watch. Uh, oh, yeah, MASH is fabulous. I mean, that's, that's what put Robert, Robert, Robert Altman on the map. But also, when it comes to people and their having served, this movie's actually got a ton of veterans. Lee Marvin's in the Marines. Telly Savalas was in the Army. Charles Bronson was in the Army. Ernest Berg, Borgnine was in the Navy. Clint Walker was a merchant Marine. Robert Ryan was in the Marines. George Kennedy was in the Army. And they all served in World War II. So while this movie might be deliriously over the top and not necessarily meant to convey a realistic portrait of World War II, you do have a lot of people who've been there, done that, and know what it's all about there on the set. I mean, we don't know what they went through for the real thing, but I wonder how they portray how they felt and what they was put through to to bring these roles to, to life, you know? Well, apparently... This story is loosely based on two possible um, uh, real-life events. There's one group of uh, paratroopers called the Filthy 13. <clears throat> That's right, yeah. But there's another group, and this story actually comes from director Russ Meyer, who was over in World War II as a combat cameraman, and he shot some footage of a group of uh, inmates who were under death sentences for murder, rape, mutiny, you name it, like the, the worst of the worst. And they were told that if they volunteered for a particular mission behind German lines, if they returned and survived, that their sentences would be set aside and their records expunged. However, not a one of them returned. But Russ Meyer, he was known to tell the occasional tall tale, so that might be slightly embellished. But part of the inspiration for this idea comes from one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. Mm, yeah, that's a, it's a, I think I can't remember how long this movie was, but it, it flew by. It really did. I, I I was surprised, to be honest. Well, it zips by. I mean, you got the early bit with just them being rough and tumble criminals. The middle bit where they're participating in all these training exercises and war games, which is a ton of fun. And then you get the final bit, which is just the mission itself. And so you get almost like kind of three different little short films. But this movie yeah. just, it really translated well to, and the, and the audiences just ate it up. A lot of people were horrified by the violence, and including fucking uh, Charles Bronson. <laughs> which is, when you, what, in the toilets? <laughs> yeah, but when you look at movies like um, like Death Wish 2 and 3, you're like, how could the star of that, like nearly 20 years later, be horrified by the violence in this? But I guess for 1967, this is two years before The Wild Bunch. And this had an ex-certificate, apparently, as well. So I don't know why that how that was classed for that, maybe. But, you know, it's maybe for the time it was the certification was, you know, they thought, this, you know, what they were doing and what they'd done and what they were going to do, that they gave up the ex-certificate for it, maybe. I mean, it was... For some people, it was controversial. There's a Robert Ultr Robert Altrich was apparently told that if you remove the scene of Jim Brown dropping hand grenades into the bomb shelter, that he might be it might be pushed as a, a film that he could be nominated for best director. But he decided yeah. to keep that controversial scene in there. And you watch it now, it doesn't really have that much teeth. But I guess for 1967, it was just most World <clears throat> War II films had always been done in a very patriotic way, so that yeah. was just considered quite shocking for people. I when I was watching this and I was watching all the people that were locked in that bunker area and you had the grills from where they were throwing the grenades down, why they were trying to get their fingers in there, I do not know. I guess Personally, maybe they're thinking they could like grab it and like hold the pin in or something or hold the, hold the handle down. I, I really I would be, I'd be trying I would to get been, the fuck away from this goddamn. Well, I would be the furthest point from those, those drop zones and trying to shield myself. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Shield, shield myself with some of the other dumbasses that are, that are down there. <laughs> but no, it's. It was very well put together. Um, I think if it wasn't for this film, some things we, we've had in the past, even probably with Full Metal Jacket and stuff like that, 
may not have been around for it. You know, they will. I think they all pick bits out of it and use them for that. Well, there apparently is quite a bit of hell raising on the set as well. Lee Marvin, who obviously he's, he's he was fine with the movie later on, but mm. thought it was ridiculous at the time. Was kind of indulging in some bad behavior on this, and he said he referred to it as crap and just a dumb, just a dummy money maker. And he was just getting fucked up beyond description throughout, and would be late to set, and people would be getting mad at him. But apparently, there was one party where he got so trashed, he started basically saying a lot of. Uh, of making sexual propositions to an old lady and she, the old lady couldn't <laughs> understand them. So she asked him to repeat it and then he repeated it. And it turned out this was Sean Con- Connery's aunt and Sean Connery was there and he was about to beat the hell out of Lee Marvin. <laughs> and the producer of the film stepped in and said, please don't hit him, Sean. He's got, he's got to shoot close-ups tomorrow. And Connery thought that was hysterical and started laughing and said like, you fucking producers. And was, was his mum was his mom one of the girls that came in, uh, to sort of, you know, those oh, girls. I, love that. I mean, I love how, like, before they go off on their mission, they decide to round up some girls so they can have one big night, but they can only find eight girls, one of whom is not a day under 70. <laughs> that might have been her. She looks rather scary, to but be honest. But I love how John Cassavetti just dives right in there and immediately just grabs the hot one. Like, they, they bring in the girls. They all look just yeah. like kind of normal girls, but there's one who's just a smokehouse, and John Cassavetes, who's still a pretty young, dapper-looking guy at this point, steps right in and starts dancing with her, and it's fantastic. And she said, "Well, where's the music?" So he starts humming some tune of his, of his, of his thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's really one funny. Of the movies that John Cassavetes like this and Rosemary's Baby are, are classic examples of movies that he would do to raise enough cash to do things like Faces and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. yeah, John Cassavetes, if he'd wished to, probably could have gone on just to be a pretty goddamn like just successful actor in his own right, but he wanted to be a filmmaker and he wanted to direct oftentimes wildly uncommercial films. But this is, he, he did the Orson Welles approach where you, you act in other people's films in order to finance your own, uh, your own experiments. Yeah. I, I think that worked really well with this one as well. You know, especially I think with the idea of, 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 the, of the background for this story, um, probably shocked a few people that, that they, they would do this but yeah it's great it's <laughs> i wish they would do this honestly i wish they would do these kind of movies more often where you have it's a mercenary I, type movie isn't it yeah i like movies about people who aren't pure and noble i like people who are either unapologetic villains or who are morally compromised but who are having to try and overcome whatever shortcomings they have to do something not necessarily good but big and grand i mean this is basically a suicide mission to kill a bunch of german officers and they succeed, and a couple of them survive. And I just hope that I hope when James Gunn is, as he's making his Suicide Squad two movie, that he will revisit movies like this just to see what they're all about because they can be insanely popular. It's obviously a wildly commercial premise because this mm-hmm. movie, yeah, it was the biggest hit of nineteen sixty seven, and that's that's saying something. People people clearly respond. And the book also was a bestseller in nineteen sixty five, but apparently the book. Is mostly concerned with the training and very little like the the, the final act action scene is yeah. like, kind of like breezed over in, in almost like a summary in the in the, <clears throat> the, same, the same way the Fullmetal Jacket was set into two parts where you had the first half of the movie was the training mission, training and then the second half of the movie was what they were doing out in the field sort of thing you know so two different two different parts of a and movie the book that could be two sounds 
a lot rougher than the movie. There's, I was reading a description about the the changes, and they said that the character Jefferson is called Napoleon White in the novel, and he's a lieutenant. And they said one night he's harassed in a bar by some drunk soldiers and is beaten and raped by them afterwards, and he ends up killing them, hence his sentence to death. I was like, God damn, that sounds you know, pretty rough. I think so, I think that would have been edited out, I think, if they tried to film that. If this movie had been made in 1977, they probably would have included it, but uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. But also, I should uh, give a shout-out to screenwriter Nunnally Johnson. Nunnally Johnson, this is his last screenplay, and he'd written tons of stuff, going back to the 30s, but he wrote like, mm. The Grapes of Wrath and Wyatt Earp, and he's got just a, a laundry list of phenomenal credits, but this was his uh, this was his swan song. But also, it should be acknowledged that Charles Bronson, this was his fourth film he did with Robert Aldrich. They'd done Vera Cruz, Apache, and Four for Texas together as well. So I just, if people out there haven't heard of Robert Aldrich, I strongly recommend you watch Kiss Me Deadly, you watch this, you watch Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. He's just a, a really solid director who, yeah, just because of the, of, it's passage of time, people are just yeah, and, talk about it. And there's less. a couple of others as well with the watch would be Flight of the Phoenix, which is a favorite of mine. Gotcha. I've not seen that one. And Me Machine. Cool. I've not seen that one either. I, I will definitely have to, uh, I will definitely have to check those out. <laughs> And Flight of the Phoenix was actually remade as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Less said about don't that. Don't go the, there. The but, better. But the, yeah. the original is fantastic. It's the, well, the, it's the director of the remake of Flight of the Phoenix, I did a few freelance uh, script reading <clears throat> assignments for him because he also did like the remake of The Omen and things. I actually helped him prepare oh. some of his answers for a Q&A about The Omen. I was like, you just directed uh, it. Like, you, shouldn't you know can I just can, can I say something, please? Because I was fuming over watching. When I saw that version of The Omen, I thought, did he just sit there with the script from the original in his hand and go, this is what we're going to say. This is what we're going to do. And I, I will defend the original to the hilt and I will just condemn the, the sequel. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of sequels, have you had a chance to see any of the television sequels to the dirty dozen? I probably have done in the day, but don't remember them that well, to be honest. Have, do you remember, have you seen them at all? I, I have not. I have not. Yeah, a, I don't think they will probably be on par. I think some of the TV movies, it won't be the same sort of um, class and production that you got with this, to be honest. Yeah, Robert Aldrich, he's, he's first rate. Uh, Lee Marvin had something really kind to say about him because he'd worked with him before in the, uh, the war film Attack from 1956. But his quote was, he found the director a tremendous man to work with. You knew when you went to work with him, you were both going for the same object a good final print. And I love that. He's not saying let's make a good movie, a good final print, because obviously from conception on the page to the final print, a lot of things can go wrong. And mm. a good director needs to be a custodian or she needs to shepherd the film to that final stage where the final cut and just, you have to see it through to the end. And I just feel like that he's just a good old fashioned workman like director. And yeah. I, I'm, I, oh, and apparently also he was a huge, uh, football fan so he beefed up jim brown's role a little bit because he he was familiar with his uh his exploits on the field yeah because then i've got to, i've got to i've got to mention escape to victory because again men and the mission for that one was a bit different but uh yeah i do like a good uh, war film that can put some sport in it
Alrighty, well, let's talk about the flick that was... This is, this is the reason we're doing this episode in the first place. You're a massive fan of Kelly's Heroes from 1970, so lay it on us. I'll stay out of your way, and I'll try my best not to interrupt you. What is Kelly's Heroes, and why are you such a massive fan? So, again, another film I saw as, as a kid, um, but I've always been a big fan of Clint Eastwood from, from, the, from, the, from the early days, from the Italian westerns, as, as you well, you're well aware. And... I don't know what this just sort of gelled with me, this movie. The idea of a heist movie and a war film, which was completely different. I don't think I've ever seen it before at the time. And the cast with this just, it was just, just knitted so well together. Again, we had um, Telly Zavalis and Donald Sutherland that were in um, <clears throat> The Dirty Dozen. But the idea here of, of a story where they stumble across a German officer that's got some information and a couple of gold bars in his um, in his bag while they're, they're raiding an area in the enemy lines and gets him drunk to find out all as much information he can and where this stash is. And from there onwards, putting a team together to go behind enemy lines and, and get the gold. And it's... <laughs> Man, this film—it's—it's not—it's not a serious movie by far. Not, a, not, but it, not but at it all. Ha- yeah. But it has some serious moments in it, and it's just fantastic. And even though originally when we were just chatting about it on Twitter, and there's a lot of people just bouncing off of this that maybe not have not known of this movie. I mean, the characters Donald Donald Sutherland being the, uh, the the tank nutter, should we call him? That that is and. You had um, Telly Savalas, who, who was uh, was was um, in charge of a lot of them anyway. And who else was there? We had um, we had Cowboy Jeff Morris, who actually was in the Blues Brothers. You remember? Mm-hmm, absolutely. He, yeah, he owned the uh, he owned the the oh the, the bar didn't the he? Bar where they had they... both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, <laughs> and um, obviously we had. Um, Harry Harry Dean Stanton as well. Very Back then young. It was just Dean Stanton in the in the credits. Yeah, yeah, and uh, incredible. And you know, Don was... Rickles is is incredible as well. I mean, Don Rickles didn't do a ton of acting, but this no, is a part that was tailor made for him. He also served as well. Yeah, and given a given a, given the nickname of Crap Game, which yeah <laughs> gets gets actually known for what it is later in the film a bit later. But yeah, it it just worked well. The way that the story progresses, this film just flies by for me. Um, I even watched a bit more of it this morning just while I was making up some notes. Oh, and you also got Carol O'Connor, a.k.a. Archie Bunker. Uh, Archer Bunker and there's Colonel Holt. So he, uh, yeah. Yeah, massive star in his own right. But this is one of the things where the, the cast is first rate. But I love how yeah, Clint Eastwood's not trying to be a hero in this. He's just He just wants to get the gold. And he's he gets the occasional Clint Eastwood snarl in there. Like at one point when Don Rickles' character is uh, kind of bitching and moaning about some of the problems they've encountered. He's like, quit your bitching and remember what's at the end of the line. Like... Eastwood, he apparently didn't even want to do this movie because he originally thought it was going to be um, uh, Don Siegel directing, but Don Siegel had, That's right, yeah. I think he was delayed on another film. There was some conflict, but at that point, Clint Eastwood had already signed his contract and he was yeah, in, that, so he had that to That was in one of other Clint Eastwood's movies. That was Two Meals for Sister Sarah, that was. Gotcha. I love Two Meals for Sister Sarah. That's a good one. So that, so that was probably that was the, um, the post-production problems he had there. Which stumbled his, his 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 to move forward. Now, ironically, I've got to say I'll say this now because I only found this out um, just a few days ago. 
Um, obviously, Arrow have just re-released their a, a new 4K um, version of American Werewolf in London. And John Landis, obviously, as we know, fantastic job with this. And I was watching a documentary on there. And he was an assistant production in this movie. Yep. This is one of his first movies. He was, and he was like a child. And, he was like 21 yeah. at the time. <laughs> and, and he played an extra as a nun. Yeah. Where, so when the, when that saw, saw the, the tail end of the film, when they get into the town where the gold is, you see these four nuns walking past. That's, he's one of them. And yeah, I apparently thought, he, I mean, when John, when John Lance Wade describes his early days, he just was hell bent upon making movies and he bragged that he won one day i'll be a director and he, he well he proved everyone wrong there yeah he hurled himself into it and uh but he bragged to donald sutherland that he was going to be a filmmaker and donald sutherland <laughs> said well i'll be in all your movies and i think donald sutherland ended up being he in f- four of his films or something like that yeah but he wrote did. i guess the treatment or a rough draft of american world for london while making kelly's heroes and i guess it was maybe shortly after this that he finally got a chance to make schlock back in america but he was just one of those guys that just had nothing was going to stand in his way and he got i mean he enjoyed success as a relatively young man i think when he made animal house i think he was like 27 or 28 or something like that and then by the time he does blue i mean blues brothers one of the most expensive movies of its time he just john landis was on fire by by by, uh, by the late 70s early 80s but this is what one of his early or one of his early gigs yeah because the because the early movies than that um which i actually saw on vhs and i've got a soft spot it was for the was the kentucky fried movie Oh yeah, I love Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's funny as hell. <laughs> so, so that was Catholic school. Was Catholic uh, was that Catholic high school girls in trouble or whatever that that short is. <laughs> that's just funny as hell. So that's like fake trailer for a porn film, and then you have like the the sexual aid video later on about like for premature ejaculation when they bring in Big Jim Slade and like it's just there's so <laughs> much great stuff in there. But Kentucky Fried Movie is funny as fucking shit. Yeah, a lot of people probably never heard of it, but um, but yeah. So that was that was quite interesting to hear just the other day about about that, but um. Yeah, the whole way the whole story builds builds on from from obviously getting the information about the gold, then their 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 commandant is is decided to he found this boat sitting around the corner, so he wanted to take it back to Paris, so he disappeared and gave them three days leave, which was enough time for them to get their bits together to to go into enemy lines and. Do the, do the heist. Also, Savalas, his character, he just wants action. He, he wants booze. He wants broads. He needs action. But he's yeah. also been told that he have three days off in the middle of nowhere because they, like, they're they're told to rest. <laughs> he's like, that has zero appeal to him. Get some sunshine. Yeah. You know? He wants <laughs> – if he's not going to be chasing girls and getting wasted, then he might as well take charge of this – harebrained scheme that Clint Eastwood has cooked up. And it's just incredible how many people get on board and how as they go – they start picking up more and more people that are on board as well. And then they start enjoying so much success that like you have all these people following their antics on the radio and who are wondering who are these officers that are taking the initiative and you know attacking the German flank. And suddenly it becomes like one of the most successful theaters of like or one of the most successful arenas in the uh, kind of like the allies war on uh, on Germany and to kind of accidentally just out of greed slowly start kicking all kinds of ass because you got the the, the general who's saying that you help to all his um, sergeants and whoever he's got corporals whatever we're not doing this war right we're we're losing at the minute we need someone that can grab by the balls and then on him hearing this information and saying Who's crap game? Is he who's using secret secret words there? Yeah, or I, think what? All, yeah, I think it's all code language. Yeah. 
and they're going they're they're doing um they're going above and beyond duty as far as the army are concerned and you know it's and you've got the commander there who's just back from paris with a load of pink and colored boxes which is which is a load of perfume and stuff i'm sure from paris he's probably looking up to the heavens going oh my god what what, what am i not doing what are they up to but in spite of the lighthearted <clears throat> tone there are some cool serious bits like at one point they get stuck in a minefield and when one guy yes, drops that... you're like whoa okay so it's not all just fun and games and they're you know very slowly but surely and very carefully digging their way across the field with their, their knives and their bayonets trying to figure out where they're more mines and of course there are still two guys out there in the field when this German patrol comes through, and then you have one mm. of those badass action scenes in there where you've got most of Kelly's heroes up on a hill who attack these Germans from one side, trying to buy a little extra time and an opportunity to survive for the guys who are still stuck in the minefield. And yeah, I mean, once again, this is 1970, so there we are living in a world of where Peckinpah films are out there. I wouldn't mm. say it's up there on the level of like The Wild Bunch, but it is a very solid, kick-ass little action scene. Oh yeah, and it and it, it has its emotion as well. Where they didn't make it, um, obviously the guy that was already dead there, but the other two that was trying to hold themselves. Yeah, <coughs> well, because they're basically using like a, a mound of dirt for cover, and the, uh, that, that and they were not, they were not on the high ground there at all. So they were completely. Um, open. <laughs> I have the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of the Jedi in that. Anyway, but, yeah, that that, but, line, yeah. that line will live in infamy. With just the idea of like, oh, like even though we've been doing like flips 100 feet into the air and flying all, all over the place. I'm standing on th- a three-foot incline of dirt, so that's checkmate. I have the high ground. Like, it's probably the, that's it. I mean, there are a lot of dumb moments, but one of the dumbest moments in all of Star Wars is, I have the high ground and Return of the, or what's it, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Lord. All right, so what do you but, think of the kind of like the, the hippie tone? Because you have this tune, Burning Bridges, and oh, there's a lot man. about this that feels almost like like the hippie version of a World War II movie where like the way Donald Sutherland's character talks and it doesn't feel necessarily like, like a period film. It's a weird thing where it feels like it's of its moment of 1970 in terms of like how the characters talk to each other, but it creates an unusual kind of contrast and flavors. Because they, they feel like they could have been sitting in Woodstock for a few, few moments. In Absolutely. That, you know, and he, he's, his his tone of um he hates negative vibes you know give me something to talk about that's going to work yeah. i don't want to hear that the engine's not 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 going to be fixed it's going to be fixed it will work and i mean it just remind you of him how he was in that even in animal house when he was smoking pot with with the uh with the students so he's used to being like that quite a lot i should imagine and uh but yeah his whole whole team were there with their tanks and the the linen across across the guns and they're just sitting there chilling i think one guy there was was having a was cooking a barbecue yeah they're, <laughs> they're, just... they're living well but they do have the fast they, they're good at what they do and they had the the fastest tanks in europe and i yeah. always heard I've, heard I've heard this great line about the american tanks versus the german tanks back then but the, the germans what you saw say one german tank is as good as four american tanks however the americans always brought five but you have a lot of interesting stuff about the tanks in here. And apparently the reason they shot this movie where they did, it still had a shitload of tanks left over from World War II. And also apparently like, the profits from another film were kind of stuck in this country unless they mm. wanted to pay a bunch of taxes. They said, well, let's just leave the profits there and we'll use it to go into the next production. Was, yeah, Yugoslavia, 1969. Well, I, did, see, I didn't think I needed to with this one as much because I know the film very well to, to talk about it. Well, what do you think but about the you... little homage to Spaghetti Westerns at the end with the, uh, the face-off and the music? I smile when that, that scene comes on. I mean, I was waiting to hear a... 
in the background somewhere. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can just thought if someone that whoever was filming this at the time that I bet you that someone behind there would have been whistling away when they were doing this, and I'm sure Clitty's would have had a smile on his face. But, yeah, it's um, a funny thing where like the movies, it's kind of a hippie movie. It's kind of a send up of spaghetti westerns. It's a World War II film. It, it does a lot of things, but I had never seen this movie prior to getting prepared for this episode. Oh, and oh, I, of course you didn't. No, so so this being your first time, how did you feel about it? And with with obviously, oh, it's an absolute blast. It, this is a genuine crowd pleaser. When you, you, nothing but smiles from start to finish, and. and don't because it's nineteen because there are I know there are people out there that because it's a film from the seventies it's not going to be any good no far from it um, I, I I don't believe that you should judge a movie by its age ever. I would watch this cast do anything I mean, uh, this cast is so, I, I love all these guys and I'd be I'd be more than happy to watch them sit in a room in a circle just reading the screenplay I mean it, it's they're they yeah. assembled an incredible team and I say going back to Donald Sutherland I like the idea that they had those pipes to put on the end of their tanks to give them a give them the feel that they were they weren't the tanks they were sort of thing yeah yeah they're and basically they, disguising and, their tanks and trying to make it look like they've got more firepower than they actually do so that they can avoid fights entirely and the other thing is obviously from the idea of Woodstock and drugs and dope or whatever you that they had tanks with paint to make pretty pictures absolutely and also off the back of that now thinking of Apocalypse Now with the scene um, with with the the Valkyrie and all that, did they get the idea of that from this film when they had the the, the music playing as they come out of the tunnels? It wouldn't surprise me at all if either John Milius, who wrote most of Apocalypse Now, or Frank or uh, Francis Ford Coppola were massive fans of this, but I, I don't have any evidence to confirm that. But obviously, this comes before the screenplay was even written, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I, I mean. It'd be very hard to make a movie like Apocalypse Now and not have seen all the big movies. And plus, in a lot of ways, this movie feels like a Vietnam War movie, even if the subject is World War II. The same way like MASH, yeah. it takes place in Korea, but it feels like a Vietnam War movie. Any war movie yeah. you make during the Vietnam War is going to reflect on the Vietnam War in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. So it was just that, that scene where they came out of the, of the tunnel to the train yard and they just blasted everything into obliteration to the, to the music. Yeah, it's probably it's, the best action scene of the movie, without a doubt. You just get to really see tanks cutting loose, and and I love you have all these beautiful POV shots on the actual turrets of the of the tank. So the camera yeah. movements become the turret movements, and then it creates an incredibly immersive experience. But it's funny, we, watching the extras that, that were the, the the Germans trying to fight. Why don't they? If you got tanks and they 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 got the big hitters, I wouldn't be up there trying to use one of those guns to have a pop shot. I think I'd be doing a runner straight away. But they all they they did their thing. They if someone died, then someone else would try and take their place and have a go at it. But um, yeah, but it's it's brilliant. It's, Another it's, thing that uh, I like about this thing. is that all the Germans actually speak German. They don't subtitle them. Most no. there's far too many movies where the Germans just. They're usually just hire British actors or people speaking German, English but with a German accent. But in this, they say, "Fuck it, let them speak German." And, and, and just, I, I never understand why there's so many World War II movies where the Germans don't speak German. Yeah, and they did the same in Guns Never Own, didn't they? Because Gregory Peck was speaking German. We didn't have any subtitles for that either. Yeah, and apparently he got dubbed because his, his German was 
terrible, but uh, <laughs> but but they pull. What would you expect from an American? You know, yeah. I suppose, you know Americans uh, don't have an ear for other languages at all. Well, mm. one really bizarre, interesting anecdote for, uh, during the shooting. I saw this, I think, either on Wikipedia or on IMDb. But Donald Sutherland, who played Oddball, he receives word that his wife Shirley Douglas was arrested trying to buy hand grenades for the Black Panthers by writing <laughs> by using a personal check, and she was trying to buy them from an undercover FBI. <laughs> and apparently when Clint Eastwood got to, I mean, heard this story in how she used a personal check that he laughed so hard that he basically dropped to his knees and he had to be helped back to his feet by Sutherland. But yeah, it's just the marriage didn't last uh, that much longer, but she is the mother of Kiefer Sutherland and his twin sister, Rachel. So they, they divorced wow. one year later in 1970. You just couldn't have, you couldn't have written that, could you, if, if you tried? Okay, it sounds like a John Landis movie, without a doubt. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I did like the um, <clears throat> I did like the the guy playing the German on in the in the Panzer, in the Tiger tank, because mm-hmm. uh, obviously he's been I think he's done quite a few bits and bobs over the time with the, with these movies, and uh, he had that scar there like he was probably going to be one of um, one of the Bond villains of the day of Blofeld or someone, and uh, yeah. Now, do you have a copy of Burning Bridges in your collection of music as such a giant m- music buff? I have I have the complete soundtrack. Gotcha. And, yeah, Lalo Sch- and it's Lalo Schifrin, remember, as well. Absolutely. He's one of my all-time favorite composers for movies. He, we, we talked about him quite a bit on one of our Clint Eastwood episodes with uh, <laughs> Matthias van der Roos when we were talking about Don Siegel films. But obviously, Lalo That's right. Schifrin, yeah, I, like Dirty I have, Harry and shit like I that. Have listened, I have listened to that, that one a couple of times myself. And um, yeah, no, uh, that soundtrack is pretty wicked, I must admit. And that song, Burning Bridges, always sticks in my head. But apparently, Clint Eastwood did a version of that on it as a seven-inch at some point, yeah, and he, he got he released. Loves, he loves to sing, and I mean, Clint Eastwood has written scores for a lot of movies. He's a giant music buff. I mean, even like in his debut feature film, they directed uh, "Play Misty for Me." He's like a jazz DJ and things like that. He's a huge music aficionado, and obviously sang alongside Lee Marvin and "Paint Your Wagon." So yeah, he he's not afraid to open yeah. up the pipes. I think he sang the opening credits for. Uh, every which way you can. I know he he did. Yes, he did. Not yeah. That was um, two beers. It was called. I think. Remember rightly. Was that with Ray Charles? I can't remember. I remember the I, song, but I, I can't. I, it's been a couple of years since I first saw that flick. I, I'd put I'd put money on it without looking. Now I think it was Ray Charles, maybe. But it, the song was called Two Beers. So yeah, that's um. Now, what do you yeah. know about the scenes that were cut? Because apparently, quite a quite a bit from the movie was removed, including apparently some scene involving German soldiers uh, with a bunch of naked girls swimming in a pool. Yeah, no, I hadn't heard too much about this. I wish I'd like to have seen it if it was available. I don't know if he ever had a, this cut would ever be released, but uh, it's, it's a shame that they don't. I mean, today now you'd have had this sitting there on a DVD somewhere as an extra. But um, yeah, no, I mean, been, Clint been says that uh, this, a lot of the scenes gave additional depth to the characters, and apparently there's quite. I mean, there's a, you can read descriptions of quite a few different scenes, but um, yeah, that, that obviously anytime there's nudity and it, it hits the cutting room floor, I'm like, <laughs> why would you do such a thing? Leave the nudity. Oh, in. Maybe, maybe because of the, maybe because of the type of movie this was that they didn't think it was required. I think. It, this is a comedy, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, maybe. it's 1970. Everybody's getting... I mean, you had to pay people not to take their clothes off. Everybody was ready to throw <laughs> down. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more of those movies that, that they... There's more 70s movies where the clothes were off than they were on, I think, at Absolutely. the time. Absolutely. 
can you think of any other movies that are in this space that qualify as one of these bunch of guys on a mission movie that you particularly love? Like, I mean, for me, off the top of my head, John Sturgis dabbled with these movies. <clears throat> Magnificent Seven and Great Escape probably both qualify. And I feel like the Richard Brooks movie, The Professionals, also qualifies. Yeah, well, it's Great Escape would definitely come to mind. And Magnificent Seven is one of my favorite westerns of that genre of those hollywood genre movies and uh oh i love that movie so much to bits i guess then if we're gonna say magnificent seven then you have to say akira kurosawa's seven samurai even though you're gonna think oh it's a historical kind of like samurai war movie but it is a bunch of guys on a mission all of whom have a different skill and background yeah the same way that pixar did it with um with bugs as well but we won't go into that one yeah yeah yeah. um but yeah no there's I suppose, even though I mentioned uh, the Dam Busters is probably men on a mission in a different way, even though this was a true story. And uh, which is that Star that Wars one is... Rogue One uses this format a little bit where you see a team being assembled and it, it turns into, even though they don't know at the time, it turns into a suicide mission. But it seems like Star Wars Rogue One continues, of all the Star Wars movies made since um, Disney bought Star Wars, that one probably gets defended the most. But it, I feel like it does have some of these ingredients as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, Rogue One's one of my favorite of the Star Wars. If you're going to forget Empire Strikes Back for a minute, I think Rogue One stands up there against the rest of them, to be honest. And even though we know the end of the story and how it's going to go, it's it's great. Well, for me, Rogue One's worth watching because you've got 60 seconds where Star Wars remembers it's cool to make your bad your bad guys fucking awesome and you see Darth Vader come out <laughs> and just beat the Isn't, fuck out of all these people <laughs> Is it, but but then when you if you then actually get a pair of scissors and you join those two films together Darth, Darth Vader goes a bit lame at the end of that doesn't he yeah I guess he goes from being completely totally unstoppable to just kind of like a an everyday guy by comparison <clears> but <throat> I just feel like what what's been missing in the Disney era is giving us great villains. And I feel like the Star Wars movies always had great villains back in the day from the, like the late seventies mm. to the early eighties. And finally, at least in rogue one, we got to see a bad guy being intimidating. I mean, I, I like Kylo Ren, but he, we haven't really seen, like in last Jedi, he just kind of like screaming and throwing temper tantrums. He just like a big fucking baby. And it's like, give us some real fucking villains that I can get. Oh, uh, he, all he's doing is uh, he's just showing you his locks of hair that's just in a neat place as he takes his helmet off and shakes his yeah. head to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, for Christ's sake, you know, just give me a break. Yeah, that's, that's still he's wearing a helmet and he takes it off and it's like it's been like perfectly feathered and blow dried and it's like what what do you got going on in, in, in that? It's, in that there's an ad, it's like an advert for something like Head and Shoulders if you know if you know what I'm talking about or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're starting to drift off topic. Any final words of praise for Kelly's Heroes as a movie that you particularly... Quick question, though. Have you seen Where Eagles Dare? Because I know it's from the same director, Brian G. Hutton. I have seen that a long time ago, but that's worth a revisit on its own. Uh, Richard Burton comes to mind for that. And with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, because I feel like... Yeah, I mean, of all... That sounds like another movie that would qualify as one of those bunch of guys on a mission movie, but uh, I just just haven't seen it. But um, Brian G. Hutton, he got the gig because uh, this movie... Where Eagles Dare had been successful, and obviously, as we mentioned, Don Siegel had to drop out. So they're like, all right, well, this guy just did one of these kind of movies to... to oh, it's, and it's based on a story about Alistair MacLean, who w- wrote the story that Guns of Navarone was based on. So, yeah, I guess it, it probably... It, I imagine it probably feels quite a bit like Guns of Navarone. And it's all set in the Alps as well. So they're all sort of uh, 
camouflage for the Alps. It's pretty cool. Nice. Well, I'll have to check that out down the road. But what I would like to do at some point down the road is tackle some of the really obscure bunch of guys on a mission movies. Because obviously we're talking about a lot of like the big ones, the really famous ones, like the giant crowd pleasers <clears throat> and the big hits. But I imagine there's got to be a list somewhere of all the really super strange, obscure movies that fall into this category that, you know, the, the true, genuine, hardcore cinephiles out there like Tarantino love and admire. Because I remember when he was about to release Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he did this mm. great podcast with Pure Cinema Podcast talking about all the movies that were playing at the New Beverly. And there were a few on that calendar that he talked about as being kind of the warm-up for Dirty Dozen, but I can't remember what they were called off the top of my head, but I imagine some of those movies would be fun to explore as well. Well, I think, not thinking off the top of my head, but there is, there's a few, I, I, I can't put my sort of my, my tongue on it, if you know what I mean, but there's a few out there that, that do qualify for this sort of this sort of genre. I like the way you put that. Instead of, it's on the tip of my tongue, like, I can't quite put my tongue on it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's much more dirty and filthy. <laughs> <laughs> No, that is a way. I don't, I, maybe, my my mother does it a lot as well. She will kind of manipulate phrases. Instead of saying, like, I can't wait to see you face to face, she'll be like, I can't wait to talk to you mouth to mouth. And it's like, that sounds disgusting. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> mouth to mouth. <clears throat> mm, spot on. Yeah. As they say. <clears throat> so, yeah, there. I think there are some, uh, some out there. Even probably some that were maybe late 70s, early 80s as well. I mean, with... Peckinpah, his film The Killer Elite, shares some similar ingredients with that. You could say The Wild Bunch, but The Wild Bunch for me is so much bigger and grander. It's like kind of like a Death of the West story, but it would fall into that category where you've got a bunch of outlaws who are on one final mission, but for whatever reason, it feels like World War II is just such a perfect fit for this category, where you don't really see these types of movies being done about like Vietnam as much, but for whatever reason, World War II films are just so popular that you got a lot of these movies with a similar framework. Yeah, I think they're forgotten about these days as well, to be honest. That's what we're the, doing this podcast. We're bringing them back. Yeah, absolutely. And where we got the, the, the ones we're getting today with all this gratuitous, um, with it, we got more of, of a realistic term of phrase for, like, Save It Private Ryan on the beaches. And... <clears throat> As much as that is grand and brilliant as it is, I still think these other films are actually better. Personally, I you know don't get me wrong, Saving Private Ryan's a great movie. I love it, but the old war, world, world, world war. I can't just say it now. The old world <laughs> I can't war quite put my tongue movies. On. <laughs> I can't just say it. They they have something special with them. I mean, again, I say just think, just trying to put my my head to it. Say Von Ryan's Express, Great Escape. Um, the Dam Busters, Battle of Britain. Um, I'm sure there's some more that can come to mind, but probably isn't at the minute. They're all they're all great great movies, and they portray probably what the the Americans and and the British were like during that that, that, that era and what they were going through. You know, so yeah, I, I find them. I mean, endlessly rewatchable. I, I love the kind of the devil may care tone of a lot of them. I love the sense of humor. I love these giant casts. I love the camaraderie. And I love just how many of these people actually were involved in World War II. Like the screenwriter for um, Guns of Never Own, he was fighting against the fascists in Spain before World War II even got started. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a different breed of filmmaker 
like we have many fine filmmakers and writers and actors today, but it just gives you a, a different edge when you've been in combat and experienced these things firsthand. And they're just like right now of all the big actors out there, did any of them like serve in the Gulf War? Did any of them fight in Afghanistan? It's like, no, like they, it's just like for whatever reason, those worlds have separated. But even like during World War II, when you had Jimmy Stewart going off and winning all these medals, flying missions over Europe and things like that, it just. I miss that period where you had that kind of intermingling of actual military service and showbiz. I feel like it just informs the movies in, mm. in such an interesting fashion. And that's definitely something that's missing from films right now. Yeah, I mean, I think you should definitely check out, even though it's probably, it's not men on the mission, it's more men on trying to survive and trying to trying to, trying to live to get back to civilization. But Fly of the Phoenix, again, that that was a really good one. I can't even put my head on to who was in it off the top of my head now, but it's... <clears throat> 1965 it, version has... Uh, it's directed... Oh, yeah, so directed, as you mentioned, directed by Robert Aldrich, but Jimmy Stewart, Richard Attenborough, Peter Finch, Ernest Borgnine. Uh, it seems like some of these... George Kennedy. These same actors keep popping up. <laughs> same? Keep popping up I, in yeah. all these. So, I honestly, when you, if you can find this somewhere, definitely watch it. Because I think you'll you'll enjoy that one. Again, you've got that that class of actor. It's a it's an era isn't it, of the Hollywood bringing all these actors again together again. And yeah, they're kind of that a, one. a lot of them are kind of ugly guys. Like Ernest Borgnine is not going to win any beauty contests, but he's just an, an astonishing character actor and has so much personality. And I, I miss the days of these guys that yeah they they look like like I don't know like they're probably should just be working like in a warehouse somewhere <laughs> but somehow they happen to be astonishing performers performers yeah. and, and we also another one worth worth checking out is a bridge too far gotcha yeah and that, and that is also that's been on my to-do list since like fucking like the late 90s when i first heard about it but for whatever reason i've never watched it i know it's got a lot of i think bill scurry is a big fan of that one but that's he, dir yeah. directed by richard attenborough who obviously was in great escape so yeah there's so much kind of shared DNA or it'd be interesting to do yeah. a family tree kind of connecting all the actors and directors who have appeared in and directed all these different uh, World War II films. So, but So in this case, you had Sean Connery, of course, you had Dirk Bogart, you had um, Gene Hackman. Nice. You've got, um, who's it? Oh, I can't his name now. Wolfgang Preiss. There's Eric Van Vogt. Um, there is just such a, I mean, the, the cast, I mean, I'm not even looking at the full list. But when you go through that, well, I'm looking at the movie poster, and it's just a bunch of, uh, uh, <coughs> I guess, a bunch of profiles or portraits of all the different actors involved. And Edward, once Edward again, Fox massive there. cast. Oh, and Liv Ullman's in it. Nice. I love Liv Ullman. So yeah, and I think Lawrence Olivier, I mean, Anthony Hopkins, Elliot, Elliot Gould. Holy shit! Yeah. So I think this was probably a, even when we were talking about this on Twitter a while ago. I think this is probably one of the last World War movies of the '70s to put that sort of cast together. So yeah, it's again this this one's well worth a watch. You can get Bill Scurry on this one as well. He'd lap this up like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what do you got coming up in the near future on your own show? Anything you want to plug or promote? So we're we're plotting as we have been for a while. So I've been missing for a couple of weeks. So look forward to doing one tomorrow night. Um, I miss hopefully no fireworks going off then as well because I can just hear Yoda in the background. So I'm sure we can hear something going on. But yeah, which. Plugging away at what we're doing with, with movies, TV, and games. Um, from from the gaming point of view, it's getting that time of year now with, with, with Christmas adverts on the TV already now. That a lot of the big games have been coming out, Call of Duty, for example, stuff like that. And 
I'm sure there'll be a load of releases in on the Blu-rays point of view, and TV shows are coming alive for their their next seasons at the moment. Like Watchmen, I think, just started as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's three episodes in, and His Dark Materials is one episode in, and then of course on you've got Witcher and <clears throat> Expanse season four on the way. So a lot of fun TV options right yeah. now. And Creepshow as well, of course, which I've only seen. I've only watched the first two episodes of that, which is pretty cool, which is worth checking out. Nice. So yeah, lots of lots of stuff to, to look forward to. Well, where where can people find you online if they want to talk more about flicks, so, games, etc.? The best place is always is Twitter because I'm my phone is always making alerts sound like it's a bomb goes off. So there's plenty. If you just catch me on Twitter if you want to chat about anything. I'm always there to to. Um, to, to speak about anything regarding cinemas, gaming, anything really. And uh, yeah, obviously our, uh, our show at, is um, at Pop Culture Gamer on Twitter as well. But there's a link there. If you find me, you'll find that there as well. So yeah, all good. Very cool. Well, it's always a pleasure and a privilege talking flicks with you. I love the, the, the topics that we explore. I can't wait to figure out what we'll put in the oven next go around. But if y'all enjoyed this show, remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, my personal profile at Colbrax. If you want some video content, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. I'm like a few subscribers away from 18,000. or Yeah, 18,000. So I'd love to get over that hump. Um, also, if you want to buy any wrong real gear, there is a link in the show notes below where you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and Stephen is rocking out a, uh, he has a, he has a wrong real shirt. So he, he jumped on the bandwagon. So you might as well do so as well, but can't thank you enough for listening. Really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but, uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.